is another cultural difference. I mean, dental cultural difference is that we have this perception uh, in, in of American dentists that you guys are, no offense, you guys are really aggressive, like treatment planners. Like you guys are like, you know, you got like, like two hand pieces with these big fat burrs and you're ready to just cut crowns and everything. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career with your host, Jazz Gulati. Hello, Protrusive I'm Jazz Gulati, and welcome to this Interference Cast all about the differences between UK and US dentistry. It's quite a light-hearted interference cast for you today with someone very special. Her name is Dr. Betty Robin, and she's the host of Dentistry Rising podcast. And it's from podcasting, and her being a dentist actually doesn't practice dentistry anymore, which is actually interesting, so we'll, we'll discuss that in a moment. But her also being a podcaster in the dental niche, we sort of connected on this uh, sort of uh, podcasting platform. We joined this weekly mastermind all about communities and online courses, and we were both part of that. And what the odds that two dentists who podcast who are also interested in running successful online courses were meeting together so that's what the story of how I got to meet Dr. Betty Robin uh, and then I got to listen to her podcast and it's really great I really I like her voice actually so we had a very light-hearted discussion about the differences the cultural differences uh, in USA versus UK as a dentist what are the earnings like what are the biggest barriers like one shocking thing for me was the level of debt that US graduates can land themselves in but also she, understandably, was quite shocked to learn about how the uh, national health system works here in the UK. So I hope it makes a very interesting sort of fly on the wall sort of a listening listenership for you guys. Let's roll to the main interview and I'll catch you in the outro. Well, I'm here on the Dentistry Rising podcast today with Jazz Gulati, who's a dentist in England. And Jazz and I met on an online um, study club on how to do online classes. And I was just absolutely thrilled that in this small little study group, another dentist joined. So what part of England are you from, Jazz? Hey, Betty. Uh, th thanks so much for, for being on. I, I'm enjoying doing this sort of joint thing with you. And like, like you said, you mentioned, what are the odds of, of two dentists in this very small little micro niche uh, finding each other? So that's been uh, fun in the last, I guess, three or four months uh, connecting with you in that. Uh, I'm based in London uh, and Reading. So it's a place called Reading. But I guess most of your listeners will obviously uh, know of London in England. Uh, and that's where I practice uh, as an associate. And I also have my own podcast, the Protrusive Dental Podcast. Obviously, this is going on both of our podcasts. Uh, so both listeners will hear a little bit of an interesting story between um, us and also uh, how things are in the US and how things are in the UK in terms of dentistry. Because I think there's very contrasting uh, working patterns, I think. Well, thank you so much for doing this because, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. I don't know a whole lot about how dentists practice in England, so I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. So um, can we start with, I, I think in England um, that you go right from high school into doing, to dental school basically, where you do your basic sciences, where we do them in college and you go right in dentistry. So how do, how do you become a dentist in England? You know what? I didn't even think about where to start and I think you're so right. Let's start there because there is already a big uh, difference there because as far as I know in the US it's like dentistry is a postgraduate uh, degree right like you already, have, right. you already have like they've done one thing already so here it's like you're 18 and then you're like you're pretty much in dental school and then at 23 you qualify which for you guys probably sounds like whoa that is way too young right well I, I mean not really if you're focusing on you know because like my dental school was three and a half years 
So you've got five whole years to get your basic sciences in, which I did in college before I did go to the graduate school, which is dental school. Okay, that makes sense. I see. I, I didn't know that. Still a little young for us. Let's see. So you graduate from college 22 here in general and then 25, 26 out of dental school. Yeah, so we're about four, on average, uh, three to four years uh, younger when we, when we qualify. So that's, I guess, I guess that's the first big difference. And what does qualify mean? Qualify means you get your uh, bachelor uh, in dental surgery, your BDS. You guys have, uh, you guys call it like DS, D, DDS or DMD, that kind of stuff, right? So yeah, right. essentially what I mean. Interesting. And then from there, you go mostly into independent practice or mostly into groups or where do you, what's your career path from there? Most people or 99% will, uh, of the dentists will do a training year. So it's called like a dental foundation year. So it's like a, a year which bridges the gap from being a student into being an independent practitioner. Uh, and it's pretty much um, publicly funded. So we have the NHS here, which is a national health system. And we can go into that. I don't want to go too into that because it's quite a controversial area. Uh, uh, of, of course, I also want to learn about you guys and the insurance system because we have some perceptions of the insurance system being maybe quite similar to what we have with the national health system. Uh, so basically, we have the national health system here uh, and we do this one training year treating patients under this sort of public health dentistry. Uh, and just to give you like the most shocking example of one of the issues with, with dentistry in the UK and, and the national health system is like the NHS is great for like the other week I dislocated my shoulder. Right, half an hour. I turn up the hospital. Accident emergencies. We call we call it A and E. You guys call it ER. Fixed up my shoulder. I was never presented a bill. There was no insurance to contact. Like there's, we don't pay for healthcare. Right, so it's just taxes pay for that. So everyone can get free access to healthcare. So that's that's the medical side. But uh, in the NHS dental side, you pay a little bit, but a complete fraction compared to, to private uh, dental care. But here's the downside, Betty, right? If, you, if I'm a patient, okay, if you're a patient, Betty, and you come to me uh, and, and I'm uh, performing NHS dentistry, and if you need uh, one restoration or you need 10 restorations, you pay the same fee and the dentist gets the same oh. fee. So sometimes, like, and, and that fee is pretty much, let's say 40, I'll make it US dollars, 42 US dollars, okay? So whether you, I, I do one restoration or I do uh, three root canals, five restorations, I get 42 US dollars. So sometimes my hourly rate is, is like, I might as well just work at McDonald's. Yeah, it sounds like it. You have no incentive to diagnose then. That's the thing. So the way we're going now, so it used to be fee per item, right? And then to make money, uh, dentists would be uh, on the other side of that. So be like overdiagnosing maybe, right? The trends. And now everyone's like, well, I think, you know, it will remineralize and it's okay. So, but, but the perception I have, Betty, of insurance-based system you have is, is kind of similar. Like apparently uh, insurances are, are very particular and they're peanuts. Is, is, that, is that the way it is? Well, I, not, not really. I think you're kind of comparing it to like an HMO plan a health maintenance organization plan where it's kind of the same thing. There's no incentive to diagnose, but the dentist gets a certain amount per month per head mm, since it's a capitated mm -hmm. plan, whether or not the patient comes in. So it's really not necessarily in the dentist's best interest to have a patient come in and utilize their resources. So that would be comparable, I think, to an HMO, what you're describing, but not comparable to preferred provider organizations, PPOs, and private practice, where you definitely get paid for what you do. What percentage of practices are, are, are fully private? Well, I'm not an insurance expert, but I would guess in fully private, I'm going to call PPO and all cash because the fully private, just cash, probably less than 5%. I mean, very small. But PPO, I guess... 60 to 70 percent 
um, our PPL. So they are getting paid for what they do. And then we have, as you say, the other incentive well, to diagnose too much and to do too much work as compared to the HMO, which has you know, a disincentive for doing too much work, like what you're describing. So, but that's not, that's not the norm is, you know, the HMO is not the norm, even though it, it's certainly growing without it, without a doubt. Well, in, in the UK, believe it or not, a lot of practices are fully private because it's either your uh, NHS and then you do some private on the side. And the way you uh, decide what you offer the patient is if it's something they need, you give it on the national health system. If it's something they want, then you, you can do it privately. But here's where the uh, lines get a little bit blurred, right? Is whereby, like, crowns, right? Like, you say to the patient, oh, I can only do a metal crown. And they're like, oh, but I want a white one. Oh, you want a white one? Oh, in which case you have to pay privately. So we call this mixed practice. So this is not how we are taught to be dentists, right? You know, this is, these right. are the conversations we don't want to have as dentists. So this is the biggest uh, downfall uh, as a nation we have. And because the prices are so low, like, you know, I'm talking, like I said, uh, rock bottom low for the National Health System Dentistry, this is, acts as an anchor for the private sector and brings everything down. So, you know, it's difficult to justify true uh, high fees because everyone, you know, the, the Joe Public thinks that, oh, but I can get five fillings for, you know, uh, 80 bucks and you're saying one uh, filling privately is, you know, $700 or whatever. So it's just a, a, a massive contrast. And we, we get into that a little bit with Denical or Denicare, as it's called in other states, where it's, it's funded based on income. So if you have a low income, you would qualify for Denical or Medical or... Um, and we get into that kind of thing. What do you want? With Denical, you get a silver crown. If you want to pay 500, 700, whatever extra, you can have a white crown. So we get into that as well with Denical as well as with HMOs. So what would you, th what do you think the average crown fee is in England? What, what do you, what would you say? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, and I would say, so if you are doing a, a crown for a patient who's getting national health uh, service dentistry, so NHS practice, the patient would pay around about, and I'll, I'll come back to US dollars, the patient would pay around about 400 US dollars. Low, really low. <laughs> extreme, extreme, yeah, good, good. So extremely low, whereas- More in the terms of our, our Medi-Cal or Denical. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's like, you know, you know, you could be earning very well in the UK and you can see an NHS dentist and they would charge you $400. But what makes it worse, Betty, is remember, like, that includes everything. That includes the crown. That includes the core. That includes the root canal, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, and if they need three more restorations, technically, if you can do it like properly and play ball, you have to do it under that fee. That $400 covers everything, which is the problem. Now, I'm, I'm a private dentist. Uh, so my crown fee is £950, which is around about... 1600 1700 well, maybe less, 1500 US dollars. That's, is that more comparable to what it yes, should be? Yes, for sure, yes. I think most dentists here are probably definitely over 1000 and the really, really good ones would be even over 2000 or 2500 3000 I mean, but I think most people in the $1,500 range is, yeah, really comparable. So this NHS, is that required? Is it like an internship? You have to do this one year out of school? You kind of do. Like, you could go private, but who's going to hire you, right? Like, you know, who's right. going to take a risk on, uh, you know, a brand new grad? So it, that's why I said the 1%, it might happen, but 99%, you, you do it. But you know what? Betsy, the good thing is that this is like your training ground, right? You know, you, you actually get so much experience because, like, now, now we can talk about appointment times because the average checkup time uh, for uh, NHS dentist or a dentist who performs an NHS contract will be like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Uh, whereas I'm and privately, you know, a new patient, I would see 40 minutes to an hour. 
I just can't operate at, at like a you know like a, like a hamster wheel. Like you're constantly just um, in and out, in and out patients. But oh, we can talk about this big difference now. I guess is where whereas we are seeing uh, one patient at a time, right? So one patient gets you know 15 minutes in the diary. So we see four patients an hour, let's say for checkups, and maybe that's how the, the average uh, NHS dentist is. Sometimes you're seeing like kids five, 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 five minutes, and you just you know just burning through them all. So right. in, a, in a day, dentists might see like. 60, 70 patients, which I think is, is crazy. And that's why I couldn't do it. And I left the National Health Service. I'm fully private. Um, so, but with you guys, from, from my understanding is most of you guys are just hopping from surgery to surgery, kind of doing the same thing. I mean, explain that to me. Not, not really. I think the high, you know, the higher end dentist do see one patient at a time. The higher fee, the one, you know, operate just the way you're operating. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We work so hard on this Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. I wouldn't say that's the norm. I do. I, people do jump from operatory to operatory, but usually only two operatories where they're getting somebody numb and then they're going back and maybe finishing a prep, that kind of thing, and then coming in and wa- you know working with the next patient. But at the lower levels, the HMO and the Denical, that kind of level, absolutely. And like you say, burning through the kids where you have a whole line of them. And since we can delegate so much of it, to, you know, auxiliary. So yeah, burning through the kids and even the adults at the very lower end. Same thing. But Betty, it seems so strange to me, the thought of um, the patients just sat there, you know, with the, you know, the prep done and they're waiting for the next age. And I guess they're all used to it. I'm, I'm guess they're used to this way of practice because, you know, how do you feel that awkward sort of silence, awkward uh, pause, awkward gap? I just can't uh, understand it. Well, I think at the lowest level, they expect it. They're paying nothing and they know that's what they're going to get and they're going to sit there and be on their phone or that kind of thing. But at the higher level where you are jumping a little bit, most doctors leave an assistant in the room with the person um, to chit chat the whole time or do impressions or, you know, kind of waste time in a lot of ways. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, a lot of people, a lot of patients come self-entertained with their phones now and (laughs) And there's the TV and all kinds of other entertainment options. But I would say the norm is to work with two ops. Um, On most practices, a dentist is working in two operatories all the time, sometimes three. Okay, wow. Now, most of us is 99% we're just working in one operatory and and that's it. Um, One one question I had, Betty, as a thought of is um, average income levels. Because here in the UK, we think like we all want to go to the US and practice because we feel like you guys earn have a huge, much bigger earning power. And I sometimes think the reason why our BDS, our dental qualification is not valid in the US is because the US like dental boards kind of know that if, if, if you open the doors to UK dentists, we'd all go there in a, in a heartbeat. So that's my sort of rationale. Interesting. So how much do you guys make a year on average? Okay. 
on average, now this is according to um, uh, yeah uh, accountant figures. So I've actually looked at the the, the national uh, dental accountants figures, uh, and the latest figures suggest uh, sixty eight thousand pounds a year. Okay, um, now obviously these averages are based on means and and not uh, medians, and it probably involves lots of part time dentists, maybe uh, you know mother of two who works two or three days a week. So it, the figures are a little bit skewed, but let's go with it. So it's sixty eight thousand pounds. I think that's around about you know a hundred thousand US dollars. I'd say, but that's that's obviously um, uh, gross uh, before tax. And what's that comparable to other jobs? Pretty good. Like the average uh, income in the UK is £27,000. So £27,000 is the uh, average full-time income. Okay. Uh, and then the dentist will get 68. So uh, tell me, what's it like in the US? I'm not really involved in organized dentistry too so, so much. So I don't know if I can give you exact figures, but I think it's about one hundred and forty to 150000 average for a general dentist. Specialists probably double that on most mm-hmm, specialties mm-hmm. are, you know, over 300,000. Um, and certainly a lot of private dentists doing 300, 400 plus, you know, that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. really have it dialed in and, you know, high fees and are sitting with the patient and selling treatment and that kind of thing. So you're lower, you know, but I don't know how that's comparable to cost of living. I mean, there, obviously there's a lot of other factors in there, but it sounds like we're quite a bit higher. Yes. Which is why I think you guys have closed the door to us, you see, because we don't want to leave this uh, sort of uh, contractual system that we have with public funded dentistry and we probably all want to go to America. Now, I know some people who have left the UK for the US and done the additional, you know, three or four years or whatever uh, and, and, you know, spent the significant amount of investment to retrain and practice there. And they've all been pretty happy from it. You know, they're happy, happily practicing in the U.S. now. Uh, and it's, it's a big jump to make, you know, five years in dental school in the U.K. Then to go to U.S. and do it all over again, it's a big it's a big step. Yeah, it's a huge jump. I don't know if it's worth that, but who knows? Maybe it is. But yeah, sounds like we're making more money per se. What's the um, ratio of women to men? Okay, so traditionally, it was very much male oriented. So when I look at the photos from like dental school, like, you know, uh, 60s, 70s kind of thing, uh, male, but nowadays, let's talk about today, it's about 60, 62% intake females, uh, and then about, you know, 38, 40% male. Oh, wow. We have very similar. We have probably 50-50 going into dental school right now. But I think nationwide, it's probably 20% or even less female still. You know, when you when you factor in all the 60, 70 year old dentist and all that, you know, it's still overwhelmingly male, which is going to change in a few years. Yeah. So very interesting. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about, I don't, um, you know, you and how you and I met. I mean, we know how we met, but, and then your course, because you've just been so impressive in the group. Well, you you know, you've done the beta testing for me as well, and uh, I I was glad for that. Uh, But yeah, the course idea and the reason I joined the little um, community that we're part of now is it's sort of like podcasting uh, and then wanting to to share knowledge. So I've been podcasting like yourself. I mean, how many years have you been podcasting, uh, Betty? About Two, two and a half, but I've been slacking lately for sure. No question. Well, uh, yeah, same, same, same here. Two years. Yeah, I've had a little bit of issue with direction. Um, I want to go, but what I, where I'm going now is to follow people's journey who just bought or sold a practice. I was focusing, we talked about this a little bit before I think we turn on the recorder, is like I was focusing a little bit more on money, which I still think is a really, really important topic. But I was getting hit up and having speak, having people record that were just, uh, what should I say, Ch- charlatans, you know, just trying mm-hmm, to have mm-hmm. access to dentists, most of whom were financial planners. 
um, mm -hmm. and just do anything to talk to groups of professionals. And I didn't, I ended up not liking that direction. So I went back into, you know, what I do for a living, which is sell practices and try to follow people's journeys and help other people that way. What were the pitfalls and that kind of thing. So yeah, I veered a little more into money because that is a passion of mine, but I've kind of gone back to the, the practice cell kind of thing. Good for you and, and well done for sort of, you know, taking that step and moving away from what you weren't enjoying uh, and going into more of, you know, what you like and what you produce and what your listeners will, will value more, I guess. I just didn't feel good about having talking to people and putting them on my podcast that I was not comfortable with them philosophically at all. And some of the podcasts that came across when I would question them on, you know, oh, yeah, borrow money off your from your house and put it in your retirement plan. So you make more money, you know, the financial planner. I was, I was just <laughs> not on the same page with a lot of people. And that did come across. So that's not the direction I want to go to use my Good. platform to do that kind of thing. But you, on the other hand, did an online class for Dennis. So tell me a little bit about that journey, how you got interested in, you know, the splint topic and what you did. Sure. So, I mean, like I said, two years ago, I started the podcast almost by accident because what I was doing at that point was um, I'd moved back from Singapore, uh, which I, where I was practicing and, and really loving life. Singapore is such a, a beautiful place. Uh, have you ever been, Betty? No. Oh, just like Asia light, just the most beautiful weather all year round, great food, great culture. Uh, and we had a great time, me and my wife. Uh, but my wife got homesick, so we came back to England. Uh, and now word got out uh, because morale in the UK dentistry scene is not very high. Okay, it's low. So word got out that, hey, there's this dentist who went to Singapore and he came back and, and maybe we should start moving out to Singapore. So like every day on my commute home, I was on the phone to a brand new dentist. You know, they were asking me questions. Oh, what's it like in Singapore? How much do you earn? Do I need to do any uh, additional degrees? Are there any exams? The whole, you know, you know the whole spiel. And every day I was speaking to new, new dentists. So eventually I was like, okay, let me record an episode uh, on a podcast. Let me start the podcast. And then the first episode was about, you know, being a dentist in Singapore and my experiences. Just so that I, w I could free up more time. For, and I wanted to help everyone, but I wanted to free up my time because I was doing one-to-one. -one, I just couldn't handle it, right? So I did one-to-many. And that was my first foray into podcasting. And then I started to come out of my shell because I'm quite a geeky dentist. I do. And, and you're really shy. You're so shy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that to, to, to allow me to, to practice my um, excess energy and, 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 and place my excess energy somewhere, uh, the podcast became my channel for my energy. Uh, and I started to bring on, like for selfish reasons, I started to bring on guests who I want to learn for. And at the same time, I was learning, but then people were learning. And it's grown and grown and grown, like, you know, recently about 150,000 listeners plus uh, and something that, you know, 120 countries in the world. And, and it's just amazing. But one thing I found around that middle of podcasting was uh, I was just doing some solo episodes about one topic I'm very passionate about, which is occlusal appliances and splints. And that absolutely blew up. Like there was one episode called Michigan Splints Are Overrated. Uh, and people really, really took an interest in that. Uh, and then I just started to share, like people, dentists were now calling me up and asking me for advice about the, which occlusal appliance to make for their patient. And this is something that I've been attending courses like for so long to learn from different people and to develop and fine tune my own occlusal philosophy. And then I thought, okay, that's it. I have to share this content. I have to share this knowledge. So I put together like 11 plus hour modular learning. Uh, and, and by the way, along the years, I've done like, you know, a certificate in dental education because I... I love sharing what I know uh, and, and, and trying to become the best educator I can be. So that was the birth of that. And, and part of learning about 
how to become a better online educator, that's how I met you because it was part of that um, community that we that we joined. Uh, and, and that's how I guess it, it led to this moment now where we're discussing uh, all these interesting things and two podcasters have connected. Yeah, very cool. So what what made you interested in splints? Where did, where did that come from? Uh, confusion. Like I find like I'm, I'm such a geeky dentist that if something confuses me, like the two things that confused me the most at dental school was orthodontics. Like what the hell's going on, right? Like wh how, how is this working? This is a voodoo magic. Uh, and then the other one was, um, I mean, occlusion always, right? Like most dentists come out thinking, you know, what the hell? Occlusion is a very complex field. There's too many schools of thoughts. So uh, fast forward now eight years and the two things which I ended up doing extra qualifications and extra learning on is lots of occlusion courses. Like, I mean, a lot flying all over the world uh, and orthodontics I've got a diploma in orthodontics so I probably my personality couldn't stand being confused so I ended up just pursuing more and more in that and then so that really um, piqued my interest uh, learning from different um, uh, educators Michael Melkers uh, Barry Glassman I did the Dawson Academy my principal is Panky trained so all these different schools of thoughts and just trying to figure out why and how and what are these different schools of thought so that's what I really got into and also I'm a massive bruxist myself uh, so helping my own self and, and making my muscles relaxed uh, also <laughs> sort of uh, sparked me on to help other patients and then dentists so what's your philosophy with splints where did you I watch part of your class obviously I can't I could, but I'm not so interested in watching all those hours of dental anymore. But I watched, I mean, the class was fabulous. You were dynamic. It was fabulous. But what, what would you say your philosophy is? Is it more like Dawson? Is it more like Spear? Is it more like... That's a, that's a great question, Betsy. I think my philosophy is an amalgamation of all those, but but very much it is um, diagnosis led. Uh, and this, I mean, there's a whole uh, there's another episode I had in my podcast, uh, which is like which is the best splint. And 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 the whole episode I was leading my uh, listeners on. I was like, yeah, there's something called the G splint, the Gulati splint, right? And this is like the best splint ever. And I was just like building it up, building it up, building it up. But really, the the moral of the story was. Every patient's G-splint is, is different, right? Because it's, it's like depends on have they had orthodontics before? Um, are they having pain or are they just, is it just protection? What's the goal? So the, the philosophy is very much getting a good history, getting a good diagnosis, and also looking at the patient's like features, what are they likely to comply with? What are they likely not to comply with? Because Betty, one, one thing we can't rely on when it comes to occlusal appliances and splints is the evidence base. Like, the literature is absolutely poor and unreliable. So therefore, we have to use the other two arms of evidence-based dentistry, which is the patient's values and clinician experience. So I've been taught by such uh, you know, great people in occlusion, and I've adapted it and sort of taken a, a leaf from Panky, taken a big leaf from Dawson, the whole B-Splint stuff, um, learned a lot from the NTI guys, Barry Glassman, and I've made my own school, where which is very much led by diagnosis, but that no one's right or no one's wrong. But what, what does this camp say? What can we learn from that? What does this camp say? And sometimes it's, it's arts and crafts, right? No, every patient's different. Every patient's unique. And you have to find that magic potion that will work with your patient. I think that's a really good philosophy because there are so many different camps. And I agree with you. When I was practicing, I did, I did Panky and Spear and Kois, and I was just confused. I mean, totally, completely confused. Like, what's the right way to go and I never put it together I just quit so so well, why did you I was I never got to ask you why, why what made you make that big life decision and, and leave clinical dentistry oh that's a long story and it's multifaceted <laughs> I I mean I think that one of the main reasons is well let's see first of all I got divorced and I had two little kids and I thought I don't like anything about my life 
So I'm going to redo everything. And also, I think I wasn't truly a dentist where you are. You're excited about it, all that. I love talking to people. I love diagnosing. I love doing the treatment plan and selling the treatment plan. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to do the work now. So I, I didn't like being chained down where I could say, okay, February 2022, this is what I'm doing on who. And then the um, Rancho Cucamonga built a courthouse right behind my office, and I started getting a lot of attorneys and judges. I had lots of attorneys and judges as patients, and I just thought they had a lot more fun in life than I did. Wow. The, the grass is always greener on the other side. It is always greener <laughs> on the other side. But I, I just really feel like I wasn't a dentist at heart, and I think I was a mediocre dentist, and I was doing all these great classes, um, but I thought, I, I don't think I can really perform and, you know, do it at the level that is needed. I wonder how many hundreds of dentists, um, based on this last two minutes uh, of this episode, will now reconsider their careers? Probably none, but they should. <laughs> <laughs> I was in, um, I don't know if you've heard of, um, oh, shoot, what's the name of it? It's Carl Reeder's group in, that went on for many, many years, 40 years in Newport Beach. Um, Newport not familiar. some kind of study club. And it probably had, it had several hundred members, and I was a member and, you know, everyone knew I was doing this. I had 50 people pull me aside and say, I wish I could do what you're doing. And then I had probably another 50 say, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. And one person, I said, if I have to flip hamburgers at McDonald's, I'm going to be happier than what I'm doing now. So I'm doing it. Regard and I didn't have a lot of things tying me down, like, you know, a spouse and debt and this kind mm -hmm, of thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was the risk was all mine. And how, how do you feel now? And how do you feel now? Like, are you glad? So glad Amazing. I did it. Yeah. Good for you. Because I just wasn't, you know, I went into dentistry. I was on the cattle train with all my friends going into medicine, dentistry, etc. But I really never made the choice that that's like what I want to do. And now that I sell practices, I would say 80% of the dentists are kind of mentally in my camp. Whereas 20% are like you, they're like, love dentistry, every little bit of it. But a lot of people do not. I mean, it's, it's not unusual, even, when, even if they're good dentists, they don't like it. I, I agree. And I think that 80-20, I agree with it. It's a figure I agree with. I think 20% are, are overly passionate. Uh, and then 80% are just like, you know what, it pays the bills. It's okay. I can tolerate it. And then so, some yeah. of those 80% are like, you know what? Uh, I'm living, my, my, my life is fake. Like I'm, I'm, I'm hating right. this. And you, you made that decision that, you know what, this is not for me. And, right. and kudos to you for, for doing that. That takes a, that takes a lot of guts. So, so well done and look what, look, look what you made of it. You know, I, I love what you're doing and what you've done and help so many people in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, totally different path, but I loved it. I made the decision early on after I graduated from law school to stay in dentistry because all my friends were dentists. Everything I knew in my whole world was, you know, was related to dentistry. So I made the decision to stay in that space. So, yeah, it's been absolutely great. And I'm very happy. I don't think I'd be happy um, if, you know, if I'd stayed a dentist. So but I think you're doing the right thing. When if you're not happy in dentistry, I think you need to look around for things that could make you happy um, by doing different procedures and staying engaged and interested and figuring out what parts you do like and focusing your practice on that. Because I think, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of middle ground between doing what you're doing and me quitting. So and most people are in that middle ground. You're so right, and I think that one of one advice I can give to anyone listening now, and then they've heard you say that how uh, you, how how grateful you are that you made that decision to leave dentistry, and here I am on the opposite end of the spectrum saying, oh my god, I love dentistry. I guess 
if you're in a if you're stuck if you're unsure then i think totally do what you you suggested there is that dentistry is such a flexible field like you can literally limit your practice to a couple of procedures you can find your niche a lot of other professions you, you can't do that so it's about finding your niche in a way and sometimes it means that you have to get out of your comfort zone to experience a new course or a new philosophy uh, and there are many, you know, as, as much as people hate it, there are lots of different schools of thoughts. And sometimes you just need to hear another school of thought. It's like a religion almost, right? It's like a cult. You have to almost join another cult and then they might rekindle your passion for dentistry. And that's one of the reasons why I, I love the podcast I do, because obviously your, your podcast, Dentistry Rising, is, has a different angle. Mine is very much trying to attract all these dental geeks. And so I love getting messages from all over the world saying, You've, you know, I actually <laughs> lost my love for dentistry. And now from listening to your energy, I've regained my love for dentistry. And that's the biggest praise I've had in my life. So I think that's what it's all about for me. Yeah, that's, that's really, really a gift, um, that if you can find that. And one thing, um, just to talk about my money passion a little bit. One thing mm. that holds Dennis back from being able to do that is having too much debt, you know, and not continuing to have the freedom um, to do what they want to do. Is this debt from dental school? Like, I would say not dental school. I mean, dental school is useful debt in most cases. But when they go out and they have to have the new Mercedes, the new, you know, the new BMW, the multi-million dollar house, and, you know, we're payment by payment. And then you have a hiccup and, you know, you're in trouble and you can't make other decisions. You can't say, OK, I think I'm going to just chuck it all and move to Michigan or wherever. You know, <laughs> I mean, I think you really limit your life choices when you get in so much debt. And here where I live in um, Orange County, I mean, it's very prevalent where you have to keep up with the Joneses by having the new whatever Tesla, the new whatever. And that's a huge mistake dentists make, I think. And it really limits their life choice. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because I'm an associate and I haven't taken on huge debt because I, I haven't even looked at buying a practice. So maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking for the rest of my profession, but in the UK, it's not something we discuss a lot about, you know, debt. And I feel as though US grads, they, they do talk a lot about debt and debt is like uh, quite a significant thing there. So that's another difference there between UK and US that you guys are always, you know, I had lots of um, dentist friends in Singapore who trained from the US and they moved to Singapore. And then they were talking about, yeah, huge debt and stuff. And it's just, it's not something that you have here. And I think maybe it's because one of the good things, I guess, is that you wouldn't believe how much I paid for my dental degree, right? My tuition fee at the time, at the time, I mean, now it's a bit more, but at the time it was 3,000 pounds. Let's call it 5,000 US dollars per year. And that's the, yeah, that's the tuition. So yes, I pay for my like rent and stuff separately, but that's nothing compared to what you guys pay. Oh, it's, it's very common for people to come out with four to $500,000 worth of debt. Very common. See, that, that's why I thought you guys, you know, predominantly the debt was that. But I guess I guess you guys are just uh, accumulating that debt more and yeah. more. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, you come out with a half a million dollars worth of debt and then lenders will give you more money. And because you're a doctor and you pile on top of that, your your Tesla payment, your Mercedes payment, your boat payment, your this, your that. And I, I think the dentists feel they have so much debt that it doesn't matter. I've told this story before, but it still made one of the biggest impressions um, that, I, you know, on a money scale that I've ever had. I was speaking for the CDA at some California Dental Association with some um, new graduate kind of thing. And right in front of me, uh, this girl sitting had this beautiful Louis Vuitton purse. And I had just looked at that purse at the mall, you know, like a few days ago. And it was like eleven, twelve thousand dollars $12,000. And I thought I would never pay that much for a purse. But I, I'm thinking in my head while I'm talking, I wonder if it's a fake. 
you know, I have all this internal dialogue going about her purse, and which is ridiculous that I'm talking, you know, on and on. And then she gets in line to talk to me afterwards. And I, I had to ask her, I said, is that a real Louis Vuitton? She goes, oh, yes. I like, how much student loans do you have? She goes, 500,000. I'm like, what are you thinking? And she got, she said key words to me. It's like monopoly money. She goes, I can never pay it off. It's not even real. I don't know. I buy what I want. That's it. I mean, that's a very, very common feeling or response that new dentists have because they don't, they don't understand what it takes to pay off half a million dollars of loans. I mean, they kind of get it, but it's like a forever jail sentence and they're just not going to live that way. I, I can't even imagine that level of debt. And that's it. That's one another major difference between UK and US is that, yeah, maybe that's why you guys are, are borrowing more money because you already have such a huge level of debt. So what's another extra couple of hundred thousand here and there, right? They just don't feel it. They just don't understand it. They don't feel it. And they think, you know, I'm going to be in the grave before I can pay it off. So I might as well enjoy life. Do you, do you know if most dentists actually do eventually pay it off? <laughs> some people do. I mean, some people really focus on getting it paid off, but that's a minority. And then you're really trapped. I mean, you are trapped in that practice and you better produce whatever it takes. Because then you mm. take on a wife and kids and they all have expectations too. So yeah, we get ourselves in a lot of money situations with dentists in, in dentistry here, which it sounds like you don't have. So that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. No, we don't. And you reminded me of something actually very interesting is another cultural difference i mean dental cultural difference is that we have this perception uh, in in of american dentists that you guys are no offense you guys are really aggressive like treatment planners like you guys are like you know you got like, like two hand pieces with these big fat burrs and you ready to just cut crowns and everything you know something that we think needs a fissure sealant you guys are like right let's crown it you know and i, ex I experienced this firsthand like you know n equals one like there's one dentist who qualified in the u.s who, uh, who worked in the same practice as me in singapore and where i was doing all these comp composites and stuff being minimal every patient got a crown with her so i don't know that's this perception that we have that you guys are, are are very aggressive treatment planners i think that can be true with a lot of people that can be true and of course it, then it comes down to an individual's own ethics and morals and beliefs and that kind of thing for myself when i first got out of dental school i had a, a job it was really hard to find a job so i finally got a job and probably my first couple weeks or so they made me do two apical retrofills on six and eleven and I did it. I mean, to this day, I'm embarrassed and ashamed, et cetera. I did it. And I had no idea how to do it. I've never done it. Yeah. I mean, I knew in theory what should be done. And I swear to God, that person lost 6 and 11 because of me. You know, but it's not, <laughs> I mean, people, I, people do stuff like that. I did it. Mm. And mm -hmm. um, so I didn't lose my job. And so I wasn't embarrassed that I couldn't do it. But I'm way more embarrassed that I did do it. I'm just horrified that I did it. But it's not, you know, it's just not uncommon for whatever reason. You got to make the payment. You can't lose the job, whatever. People are compromising. So I think it does come down to your individual ethics, who you are as a person, how you diagnose. Well said. So, so Betsy, one thing I, uh, I haven't told you yet is that in one of my, in, in every episode that I do, I, I have a protrusive dental pearl. It's like one tip I give, like, you know, clinical dentistry or communication or whatever. And one of them I just stole from your podcast. Okay. So I need to now uh, credit you because you, you did such a good uh, job of reminding me of this. It's, it's such a great little pearl. Uh, I'm going to let you say it because you'll do a much better job. But it's basically the one about the power of a silence after you present a fee. Can you just, just give my uh, listeners again a flavor that only Betty can of that? Well, I do, I do think um, being quiet 
And, you know, after you present a fee, being quiet is hugely important. I think it's really important to present the fee in a confident and clear manner and not too confusing, and then be quiet and let a patient respond. It's kind of the old philosophy of he who speaks first loses. But mm-hmm. when you know that you're doing whatever it is, say you're doing six anterior veneers, the fee will be $12,000. That's it. Be quiet, keep eye contact, and they're either going to say something that lets you go the next direction. Sure, could you do it next week in time for my daughter's wedding? Or, you know, um, that's nothing I can afford, but I'll save for it. Maybe we can do it in a couple of years. Whatever it is, I think the doctor is always best positioned to handle that objection or the next comment compared to an office person. I don't like doctors to delegate, you know, treatment presentations, at least of any magnitude, to an office person because they can't, you know, they'll start talking about payments. They'll start talking and payments may not be the issue. So I think the less you say when you're presenting the treatment, the better. You don't want to confuse people. You just want to be really clear, then be quiet and listen to what they say and go from there. So I don't even remember what I said on that podcast, but... But no, you, you covered it well there. But it's an important lesson. I shared it with my uh, listeners as a pearl. And I really do think that uh, a lot of young dentists, it, it can be a challenge, right? Or any dentist, it can be a challenge. Like when you're not used to presenting fees and you're doing more complex work and to, to maintain that eye contact and say it confidently for the first few times. And then you have that silence. And, that, and those three seconds seem like three minutes. And then what's the most, most common thing we'd say? Be like, oh, why don't you think about it? Or why don't you go home? And that's the worst thing you could say. Like, get out of here. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So I just want to highlight that. I did use a lot of consultants in my dental practice, you know, and like you say, I took little bits from each of them. And um, even when I present listing agreements now, I do that. Like, this is how much it is. This is what I'll do, won't do, whatever. You know, they do it, they don't do it. You know, the same thing with, with presenting treatment. I think you need to be eye level with the patient, knee to knee. I think you need to be looking at them, not have, a, not have the chart, not have a lot of extraneous hand movements. Just say whatever it is. You have the veneers, mm. the cost. Um, you don't have to talk about everything else in the world. You can talk about that later. Like after they've accepted, we're going to need to take models. We're going to need to da-da-da. But to present the treatment, confidence, clarity, and keep it short and be quiet. Perfect. And I love it. And I just wanted to highlight again, in case you missed it the first time on, on my show, uh, one important tip that was. Uh, a- any other tips that you have? I know I'm putting you on the spot here. But any other, like one more tip you can give maybe uh, to, to the dentist listening from the Protrude Center podcast side to help become better communicators when it comes to money or, or treatment plan presentation? Any other tips that you picked up in your when you were getting these consult- consultations? Let's see. What could I say is another tip? I would, um, there's a lot of dentists whose practice I go into and have no idea about their overhead. And, you know, of course, that's a lot more important when you own your practice, or it's very important when you own your practice compared to being an associate. But I think you need to stay plugged into your practice um, as to what the front desk is doing, what your numbers are, how much you're diagnosing, how much... Uh, sometimes people say, well, I, you know, there's no crowns on my schedule. Well, that's because you didn't diagnose anything. Um, one of the consultants I had first, um, I had arrived, I had like a two and a four year old. I had arrived late, you know, I'm paying this consultant through the nose and here I come in 20 minutes late and she just kind of totally slowed me down. She said, do you know that the energy that you bring into the practice today has a huge effect on 
how you're going to diagnose, how the patients are going to feel about you, um, everything. So you need to calm it down, get there here a half an hour early, and have your head in the game. If you only want to work four hours, that's fine, but you, for four hours, you have your head in the game. And I think that's a huge mistake dentists make, is they come in very scrambled, not ready to work, and not ready to be totally present in their practice while they're there. I'd like people to cut hours and be totally present and probably do double the production. Well said about presence. And to add on to that, like, forget about any arguments you had with your spouse. Forget about, um, the, the, you know, what you had for dinner last night. Forget about all the unread emails. You have to forget about absolutely everything and give your patient every single um, ounce of your energy. Yeah. And, and then you will diagnose what you want to do. Patients will like you and come back and do the rest of their treatment because they feel that you're totally present. I mean, that's what we all want from all relationships we have, you know, with healthcare providers, with friends, with everybody. Like, be totally present, be with me, and then when you're not with me, do what you want. 100%. And that's when you get to be yourself and, and, and show your true self uh, and, and practice um, with your values at display. And then you obviously in time will attract the patients who have the same values as you. So it goes full circle, basically. Right. I think it does, too. It really does. And the people that do the huge numbers, um, that's what they're doing. They have their life together or organized in a way that they can be calm, they can be clear, um, they're confident and focused, and it comes out in all aspects of their life. How many days does the average dentist clinically work in, in the U.S.? Uh, four. Four, okay. I think four. How about there? Yeah, I mean, maybe four, maybe even four and a half, five. Um, it, it really varies. I think if you're a practice owner, you can, you know, maybe work three. Uh, it, it varies, but there's a whole saying that if you drop back to three and a half days clinical, I think maybe Panky sort of um, said this, but if you drop back to three and a half days clinical, you'll find that your income really doesn't drop that much, but your productivity, your energy levels remain high. So the reason I want to just plug that in there is because we can burn out if you do too many clinical hours and to, to, to be able to show up in the way that we described in the last few minutes, you have to almost do less and, and go in less and work less hours so you can have the energy to, to be the best dentist you can be. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally a fan of that. Three days, I think, I mean, dentistry is hard work in every way, not only physically, but mentally, emotionally. Um, three, three and a half days, I think, is really perfect. And, you know, do a lot of CE and interact with your colleagues and, you know, in, enjoy a long career, not trying to burn out in five days. I mean, five days will burn you out really quick. Obviously, if you're yeah, the new grad, then there's a, the whole beauty because, you know, to, to balance it out with accumulating your 10,000 hours, right? Getting those failures in. So there's, a, there's something to be said about actually going quite, quite hard initially, but not at the sake of your mental health. So there's, got, there's a fine balance to be struck initially. But as you gain more experience, definitely, you know, make time for the finer things in life and, uh, and drop out your clinical hours so you can have more energy and vitality. I agree. Amazing. Well, uh, Betty, it's, it's, it's been great to have you uh, on for, to, for the Protrusorati to listen to. Uh, and I hope this has been valuable uh, for, for your guests as well. I'm sure it will be, and I think everybody will be really interested in hearing it and hearing what dentistry is like in England and checking out your course. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. So thank you so much for listening all the way to the end, guys. That was Dr. Betty Robin from the Dentistry Rising podcast. Please do check it out if you like Betty's style. She is very much like a, her episodes are non-clinical. So I think there's something beautiful about that as well. And you have to respect her her journey and her sort of desire to make massive change in her life and leave dentistry. So that has to be respected. Uh, and I think it's great what she's achieved as an attorney and also now looking at uh, practice acquisitions. So I'll catch you in the next episode. Same time, same place. Thank you.